0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, when you think of Celine Dion, you probably think power ballads and movie hits, right? But near Auckland, New Zealand, her music is being blasted on these huge sound systems, apparently because it's more treble than bass, in something called siren battles. And not everyone there is feeling the love these days. We head to New Zealand to find out why. Then we travel to a tiny island, just 120 acres called West Ironbound, just off the southern coast of Nova Scotia to meet a third generation wild sheep farmer, find out how the flock came to be there in the first place, how tough it is to wrangle them every year, which they do at the end of the summer, and why it's a throwback to a different time. Israel today revised the number of hostages it believes are being held in Gaza by Hamas to more than 220. One of them is believed to be 74-year-old Winnipeg-born peace activist Vivian Silver. I speak with her son Yonatan in Tel Aviv about the fight to hold on to hope over the last 20 days. And retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer is one of the world's foremost experts on urban warfare. We discuss the challenges Israel faces in Gaza, and in particular contending with that massive network of underground tunnels in Gaza where those hostages are believed to be held. But first, the search for the suspect in a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, continues tonight. 40-year-old Robert Card is alleged to have opened fire at a bowling alley at a bar last night, killing 18 and injuring 13 others. We speak to someone in Lewiston about the situation there and to the former FBI special agent who created the Bureau's active shooter program about the complexities surrounding this kind of manhunt. Now, growing up in Montreal, as I did, most of us have spent time in that state, and it's a wonderful place. And for a long time, it's kind of been exempt from some of the things that we see happen elsewhere uh, in the U.S., and one of those things is mass shootings. But that, tragically and sadly, stopped, ended yesterday. Here is the state's governor, Janet Mills. I'm profoundly sad to
1: stand before you today to report that 18 people lost their lives, and 13 people injured in last night's attacks.
0: A manhunt continues tonight there for the suspect in that mass shooting in the city of Lewiston, a city of about 40,000 people, some 300 kilometres south of the Canadian border. Hundreds of law enforcement agents, including dozens of FBI agents, have been hunting for a suspect, a 40-year-old reservist whose name is Robert Card. He's the suspect in this since Wednesday night's shootings. Uh, There is a uh, shelter in place uh, in many parts of the state right now, not all over. It's a big place, relatively big place, but certainly in and around Lewiston, there's been shelter-in-place that's been ongoing since yesterday. Um, and at least, again, 18 people killed, 13 wounded, many still in hospital after a shooter opened fire in two locations around 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, a bowling alley and a local bar. Here's how one eyewitness described escaping the gunfire in the bowling alley.
2: Well, we were inside and normal night of bowling and out of nowhere, he just came in and there was a loud pop. thought it was a balloon. I
0: had my back turned to the door. Um, and as soon as I turned and saw that it was not a balloon, he was holding a weapon. I just booked it um, down the lane, and I slid
3: basically into where the pins are and climbed up in the machine and was on top of the machines for about ten minutes until the cops got there. Yeah, I wasn't even there ten minutes.
0: Right. Uh, authorities are looking into the suspect's mental health issues after reports uh, that he had been hearing said that he said he had been hearing voices and threatening to shoot up a National Guard base in Maine earlier this year. He was reported to have been committed to a mental health facility for two weeks over the summer. Uh, Again, because of the relative proximity to the Canadian border, the Canadian Border Services Agency, or Canada's Border Service Agency, has issued an armed and dangerous alert to its officers stationed along the border, warning them to be on the lookout for the suspect in this case. Well, Bates College in Lewiston is about a five-minute drive from the bowling alley and midway between where these two uh, horrific incidents took place uh yesterday evening and joining me now from lewiston is michael Roke. he happens to be the chair of the department of sociology at bates college and he's written extensively about criminology and mass shootings as well michael thank you so much
4: thank you for having me uh,
0: I, i'm trying to picture i mean i've been to lewiston years and years ago it, it's it's you know it's a pretty pretty quiet place generally the, the shock there uh, it must be hard to describe What has today been like
4: Today's been a really difficult day um, There's been a lot of checking in on students um, who are still in lockdown they've been in lockdown now for over twenty four hours you know I've been checking in on my students who uh, have not been able to move from academic buildings and figuring out how we can move them back to their dorms and get them fed uh, checking in to see how they're doing emotionally you know there's there's just not really a script for this sort of thing and uh Um, Also keeping an eye on the manhunt, uh, which is uh, unfortunately ongoing, and um, that is something that we are monitoring at at this moment.
0: Tell me a bit about about Lewiston now and, and the kind of, I mean, it's not a huge place um, and just the kind of impact this would have on a community of that size, just 40,000. And again, Bates uh, right in the middle of, of these two scenes, but it feels like a small place. And, and the impact of this would would be devastating, not just on the campus, but on everybody around it.
4: Yeah, you know, Maine is often described as a, as a pretty small community. It, you know, much like um, Canada. Uh, people know each other. Uh, Bates is is not on the outskirts or, or separate from the Lewiston community. It's it's directly in the heart of uh, of Lewiston. We have uh, very um, purposeful uh, connections with the, com- the Bates community. You know, we have sort uh, many of my classes are what we call um, community engaged, where students work with organizations that are within the community. You know, so it's a a, a part of the community itself. And so when we talk about Lewiston, we have to talk about Bates as well. And this type of event is going to be sending shockwaves um, for for many, many uh, days following this event. Uh, We're still in the middle right now of trying to figure out what's going on and um, whether this uh, manhunt is going to end anytime soon. And so that's kind of the, the primary priority. But um, we know that there's going to be a lot of work to be done to try to figure out how to help people and to ha- how to move forward and heal from the trauma that is uh, is ongoing right now.
0: Right, and I can imagine that both these places are, are familiar to you and to anybody in Lewiston.
4: Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, I I grew up about 40 minutes away from Lewiston. Um, I came back um, when I when I took the job at Bates and. Was not that familiar with Lewiston. Um, it, it somewhat had a uh, not necessarily a great rep- reputation um, as a city in Maine. But mm-hmm. I've grown over the last ten years to to really love the the city. It, it has a lot of uh, interesting culture. Um, it's a really nice place to live. Uh, it's a, like you said. It's it's really just a small town where people know each other and and people you know enjoy being out and about and the the type of um, Consequences from this type of event are, are, are just going to be felt for a long time.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you study this, these things as well. I, I'm, I'm just wondering for you, uh, it must have been a, a real sense of, I mean, I don't want to say disbelief because I don't think I think a lot of us, even on the Canadian side of the border, have sadly become a bit numb to these to these reports. But uh, just for you, having studied this, I know you've talked in the past about uh, Maine escaping these kinds of horrific incidents, and and yet. Yesterday at round seven, you must have, you must have really felt a sense of disbelief. Honestly,
4: yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, I was talking to people in the news media, locally anyway, about certain initiatives that were um, that were coming to the fore, uh, trying to figure out whether we should enact some different laws regarding gun control, and you know, I had mentioned that we had never had a mass public shooting like this. We had never had a a shooting in the public where more or more people had died. And I thought that, you know, there wasn't anything that was special about Maine. I just felt like we were lucky at that point and and it could happen at any time. And, you know, last night, as you mentioned, when this was unfolding, I I thought, I I can't believe, you know, I, I knew that this could happen, but at the same time, to happen in your backyard, to happen in the community that, that you work in and that you've lived in for the last 10 years, um, it really is surreal. It just does not seem like it's, it, it doesn't seem real at this point.
0: Yeah Does it Does it shatter a certain sense of security uh, in, in the town and in the state? I, I think
4: that there is a real fear that that's going to happen, that uh, Lewiston and Maine in general have been considered very, very safe. You know, Maine has a very low rate of, of crime relative to the rest of the United States, uh, a low rate of, of gun violence as well. Lewiston is um, a relatively safe place. And so the the fear is that this type of event will change the way people live and then change their perceptions. Um, and, you know, when this, when this sort of event comes home and, and people that you know and love and people that you associate with are directly affected, you know, you can't help but be hyper aware that this can happen at any time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've covered, you know, I've covered incidents in in smaller areas. And then one thing that you notice right away compared to something that might happen in a huge city is that it's about one degree of separation in these in these incidents to everybody in the community will know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who's been impacted by this directly
4: absolutely and so my social media feed has kind of been a testament to what you just said you know people are posting uh, images of uh, now that now we're starting to learn the victim's names and you know people that i know that i so for example play softball with they, they know that one of the individuals who was killed was a was an umpire in softball leagues and um, another person was known to another friend of mine and another person was a Uh, a parent of a a friend of mine, you know, and and with a small community, that that's just what happens. And it really just makes all of this become more real. Um, It's not just an abstract event that happened somewhere else, you know, and, uh, and um, it's really something that that makes it difficult to, to work your way through. And, you know, it's not something that you can just easily turn your your attention to whatever the next crisis is.
0: And you were mentioning that uh, the, the sort of shelter-in-place orders are still very much in effect for, for the area, and that's impacting many people, your students. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about you personally, but it's impacting, I'm sure, the entire community.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm the father of two small children, and their school has been canceled. It was canceled for today, and it was canceled again tomorrow. Uh, and so they will be home, and Bates' classes have been canceled um, today and tomorrow. I just got a text message and email from the, um, the college that the lockdown is still in effect for students. So until the manhunt concludes, uh, th- that will remain in place. And that just affects everything. You, know, you, you want to be ca- cautious about uh, not interfering with the manhunt. You also want to be sure that you're uh, protecting your family and you want to make sure that the students are safe. And so um, it, that, that's priority number one at this point.
0: Yeah, and what do you tell? What do you tell kids in these situations? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't. They must know. They must sense something is happening.
4: Yeah, so I, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and and this morning we decided to to let them know that um, something had happened where an individual had um, had hurt a bunch of people, and um, we didn't know where he was, and and so that as a result they would be staying home from school and. You know, it's it's unclear, you know, if they understand or or um, can can appreciate the gravity of the situation. But uh, it's a very difficult conversation to have. You know, it's it's there's a lot of nuance there that you you can't really express um, to children who are very very young. And you know, and it's not just for young children, but it's uh, these conversations are going to be ongoing with my students as well when when we get back on campus and when we have classes again. They're going to be looking for answers. And, uh, you know, these are things that I teach in the classroom, these issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's going to be kind of uh, on me to try to help them work their way through this and to try to understand, you know, why these happen and, and, and understand how we can make ourselves safer. So these
0: conversations are going to be ongoing for the next days and weeks. Michael, obviously, I was reading some of the things that you've worked on over the past couple of years. You wrote a paper called or co-wrote a paper called Averting Tragedy and Exploration of Thwarted Mass Public Shootings. You wrote another one on the association between state gun laws and mass public shootings. So this is not only something you're now living through, but something you've also studied extensively. It feels once again like we're asking that question. How do you stop this?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an important question, and it's one that we've been asking ourselves now. It seems like every single time one of these incidents happens, and now this incident has really brought this home. You know, it's it's something that has happened in, in our backyard, and uh, it's, it's so much more personal. So thinking about the, the empirical sort of black-and-white research that I've been doing for the last 10 years and now thinking about this incident in particular— uh, it, it is really surreal, but um, I, I think there, there are things that we have learned in our research. You know, there was a time when mass shooting research was really relying on anecdotes and, you know, a few cases here and there because they, they are so rare, but we are at the point now that we have developed databases that are extensive enough that we have conducted really rigorous research, and, you know, not just my team and I, but but other teams uncovered a lot of important information about these events, about how they happen and, and what happens before them. Uh, and, and we've developed enough information that I think that we can guide policy in a way that's, that's uh, empirically sound and, and effective. The question is, will politicians listen to us? You know, I've, I've been talking to a lot of people from the media today. Not one individual from, you know, the main legislature has reached out to try to understand these these issues, which I think is is a major problem. But your question about what can we do to try to prevent these, you know, what, that paper that you mentioned looking at gun laws, what we did was we looked at the a relationship between the incidence of mass public shootings, and mass public shootings are different than mass shootings. You know, mm-hmm. they're a specific type of, of mass shooting. But we were focusing uh, primarily on mass public shootings and a variety of different gun laws. And what we found was that there was one particular type of law that was um, associated with a reduction in the number of mass shootings um, across states in the United States, and that is requiring permits to own a a firearm.
0: Right, which Uh, Maine doesn't,
4: right? Right, which Maine does not. Maine has very little in the way of gun laws. Um, We also looked at what type of laws are associated with less carnage. So if, if a mass shooting happens are there laws that can, that can establish that, um, that there will be fewer casualties? And we found that large-capacity magazine bans uh, are effective in terms of reducing the number of victims um, per mass shooting event. So a large-capacity magazine is one in, in which 10 or more rounds can be held. And so if you ban those, if you just simply ban large-capacity magazines, then you reduce the number of victims per event. And, and again, that seems to me to be something that would be palatable and reasonable for both sides of this political divide that we have in the United States, because you're not restricting the rights of individuals to own a firearm. You're simply making that firearm less deadly. Uh, right. And so we we know that these type of uh, legislative acts can be effective in, in protecting us. And it's not just our study. It's been these things have been found across other studies as well. So we have this information, and the question is, uh, do we have the political will to, to put them into action? You know, those, right. are, those are solutions that are related to gun rights, gun control. There are other solutions right. as well. Maine has... Michael, um, I, I, these, hate to st-
0: I hate to stop you there. We've yeah. just, we're edging at it. Listen, I really hope that your students and you and everyone in the community is okay. I know this is a really rough time, and it's not over yet. The sure. manhunt continues. But thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it, Michael.
4: Oh, absolutely. Thank you.
0: We've been talking about this mass shooting in Maine, in Lewiston, Maine, a city of about 40,000 people, some 280 kilometers south of the Canadian border, a pretty quiet place. I mean, Maine is a pretty quiet place. Generally, they've never seen anything like this before. It had been one of those states that had been spared the horrors and the tragedy of a mass public shooting. That is until last night. The suspect, 40-year-old Robert Card, a Army reservist, is still On the loose, apparently. Uh, The manhunt continues tonight. Uh, We were speaking with a uh, professor uh, in the last half hour from Lewiston who's at Bates College, which is right in the center of town. He was talking about how his students are still sheltering in place, uh, that basically the whole area has been locked down since last night, and just how, how devastating it is for the community that everybody knows somebody who's been... Everyone's either been impacted by this directly or knows someone who has. When this was happening uh, late last night, I was just before I left work late last night, I was looking around at some statistics, and sometimes I just find the stats on mass public shootings or mass shootings in America are just so devastating. Um, So here are some. Um, U.S. fire-related civilian deaths over the last 50 years exceed the number of soldiers who died in combat in all wars combined. More American children and young adults died from firearms injuries in 2020 than any other cause. Uh, The rate of gun homicides has been 25 times higher than that of comparable nations, such as Canada. If the U.S. were to inscribe on a granite wall the names of all those lost to firearm violence in the past two decades, they would need a monument 12 times larger than the Vietnam War Memorial. That is the reality of the situation in the U.S. And yet here we are again. Uh, talking about another one of these tragedies as the search continues again for that suspect believed to be responsible for the deaths of 18 more people in Lewiston. Um, Again, the shootings took place in two locations, including a bowling alley where there was a youth league event taking place and at a bar nearby. The motive, nobody knows at this point in time. They don't think it's political. Um, they do know that there had been some mental health issues with the suspected shooter over the course of the summer. Uh, he had been apparently, at least reportedly, uh, spent some time in a, in a mental health facility getting some treatment. But we again, uh, there's still a lot to learn and the suspect is still at large tonight. A young girl named Zoe was among those injured at the bowling alley. Again, I mentioned it was a youth league event when a bullet grazed her leg. She and her mom barricaded themselves in a room at the bowling alley.
5: I didn't know until I saw the bleeding. And then after that, of course, I noticed it and I felt a little bit of the pain. But, like, I wasn't worried about that. I was more worried about, like, am I going to live? Am I going to make it out of here? Like, what's going to happen? Are the cops going to come? I never thought I'd grow up and get a bullet in my leg. And it's just like, like,
3: why? Like, why
5: do people do this?
0: Well, Zoe asks the question that so many have been asking for years and years and years now, why? why. And again, the challenges tonight with a suspect at large who is not only an Army reservist, but also reportedly uh, has, has a lot of training in, uh, in, in outdoor abilities, apparently a very good marksman. So there are a lot of challenges for those searching for the suspect tonight and for the community reeling from yet another mass public shooting. Catherine Schweit is a former FBI special agent. She created the FBI's active shooter program. And she's the author of several books, including one called Stop the Killing, How to End uh, the Mass Shooting Crisis in America, and How to Talk About Guns with Anyone is another one of her books. And uh, she joins me now. Catherine, thank you so much.
1: Oh, I, I would say my pleasure, but boy, it's a really tough subject, but it is something that I've spent a decade working on. And despite everybody's and what's what we're dealing with right now, I think we've made a lot of progress.
0: Yeah, it's this one, again, I mean, the circumstances in each are different. This one seems to have its particular circumstances. I guess from the beginning, um, the fact that this has gone on for so long and how it unfolded, we believe, in Lewiston, is a bit out of the ordinary because so many of these are over very quickly.
1: Yes. In fact, uh, you know, the research that um, my team put together that I authorized uh, w- when I was at the FBI, it was really the first research on uh, FBI uh, by the FBI of real law enforcement reports on these types of shootings, we found that 70% of them ended in five minutes or less, half of them in two minutes or less. So a long extended time like this is very unusual. Uh, but I think if you look at the shooting itself, the shooting only took, you know, 15 or 20 minutes cause he went right. to a few locations and then he took off this manhunt situation. That's not very common. And, and and frighteningly, the longer it goes, the harder it is to find him.
0: Yeah, and I guess a lot of information has been out, coming out today about his background. And, and clearly, uh, the suspect in this case uh, has quite a bit of training and seems to be able, at least uh, from what we can tell, might be able to disappear uh, in, in what is a pretty rural area or a pretty wooded area if you've been there.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you can look back to the Unabomber and think uh, here in the United States about somebody that took us years to find because he was living whole up in the woods, you know, with very limited communications. So that time element is critical because he we know he abandoned a car. Uh, It was near a boat dock. Uh, He's got he's pretty skilled. He owns a lot of territory uh, of his own land. And he's uh, his family is indicating that he's, you know, pretty familiar with and and comfortable in the rural rural area in the in the wooded areas so you know he's he's prior uh military some year a few years in the military so training in that way a survival training that way so just a lot of challenges in terms of finding somebody in a very wooded area
0: yeah and of course it's it's rare to see a place stay in lockdown for so long as we've seen uh in Lewiston and and surroundings of late that too i mean this must be a really challenging one for those trying to locate him i mean a needle in a haystack, literally.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And the lockdown concept is, you know, we we don't do lockdown when we have, uh, sadly, you know, we had had 20,000 homicides uh, in the United States last year, which I'm not bragging about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when somebody shoots, and then they take off, and we don't find that person, we don't lock down the whole city. But I think when it's this kind of an incident, people are terrorized it is a terrorizing incident it's appropriate to call it terrorism and people are terrorized and law enforcement's advice to them is stay inside because we don't know where he is when if a shooting happened down the street and a conflict between two uh, people who are just uh, mad at each other or neighbors we wouldn't think about it in that way we wouldn't say oh let's shut the whole city down so it's a kind of a unique circumstance also for the community i think
0: yeah, this happened uh, only about a little more than 200 kilometers, about, I guess, about 100 and some odd miles from the Canadian border. So clearly, as you would remember, I guess, from your time in the FBI, uh, that would also be, I mean, he seems to have gone south, not north. But but there there is always a concern that that big border, which is, you know, the largest undefended border uh, in, in the world, uh, could be crossed, right? I mean, there is that concern, too.
1: Oh it's understandable um you know my uh, my half my family's from Canada many mm-hmm. still live there and very aware of the fact that it is a porous border. I, as a child, you know, you just hop in your car and drive over. And my, uh, grandparents lived, uh, in, uh, in the Quebec area, South of Quebec, Sherbrooke and, um, South of Montreal. And I, I guess that's the right way to say it. And, yep. you know, they would drive into the States to go shopping all the time. Uh, I recognize that and, and it's a legitimate concern. And I think really the advice to listeners, um, is to just be, uh, be cautious, be careful. Uh, and report anything unusual, a car that doesn't belong in your parking lot, a car you see on the street that you don't recognize, a motorcycle, uh, somebody who's asking questions. Um, it's okay to report that because police will sort it out. The FBI here in the United States is working with the RCMP and others uh, across the border. We recognize that the the porousness of, of any um, border when it comes to violence.
0: And in this case, I mean, this is something you've talked about often in the past. There is this, uh, I mean, there is a a misconception that these are done in haste. And you've often pointed out that in these situations, unfortunately, uh, in these tragedies, there is usually a fair amount of planning that goes on by the by in this case the alleged perpetrator, um, which could involve you know any number of ways of getting away. If that was their plan to get away, uh, then then there would be, would have been planning here. This is not being done necessarily on the back of a napkin.
1: Absolutely, I think that's a great observation. These this type of violence is what we call uh, targeted violence. It's a planned violence that is based on a perceived or real grievance, Uh, someone is struggling uh, for whatever reason and they decide that this is the avenue, in order to commit this kind of act, they have to make decisions and they have to buy the equipment, they need the ammunition, they need the extra magazines to load with the the lethal uh, rounds of ammunition. And then they have to, oftentimes they practice or they might do surveillance. And then also they may plan for a departure. Uh, We actually see 30 to 40% of these types of shooters commit suicide or seek to commit suicide uh, by cop. Uh, So when someone chooses to escape, they often make that plan, and then we have to go find them. Catherine
0: Schweit is a former FBI special agent, creator of the FBI's active shooter program. Catherine, in each of these, I think, you know, especially, I can't imagine how numb uh, people in the U.S. get to these horrific incidents. Certainly on this side of the border, we look across the border and think, not again um and i guess each one of them has a different has completely different circumstances i would suspect that in this case there are questions about uh, a mental health episode over the course of the summer uh in the case of this suspect obviously he would have had access to weapons maine has pretty liberal laws when it comes to uh to to weapons what do you, what does this one tell us about about how this potentially can be stopped or curbed sometime in the near future
1: Well, I think that uh, when we talk about targeted violence and we know that it involves planning and preparation, every one of those actions is something that somebody sees. So I think the very first thing is to recognize that FBI research tells us that the people who are most likely to see something and should say something are the people who are right near individuals. So as much as I think the people who are very close, whether they're family members or friends or children uh, or parents they're, they're the most likely to see it. And they're the least likely to report it because they don't, they don't, they want to deny it. They, they say, oh, my co- kid could never do that. My husband would never do that. And that's, that's, that's its, that's its first challenge. That's the first challenge we face.
0: I, these days, I suspect that social media could be a bit of a giveaway as well. You've often talked about collectors of grievance as being, and we don't know what happened here uh, yet, uh, but you know that that there is sort of a grievance collection that goes on, and and perhaps those are some of the warning signs as well. I mean, that's very common uh, out there, and it's hard to be able to tell you know who's who in all this. But uh, that's one area you talked to you've talked about that the the collecting of grievance.
1: Yeah. Grievance collectors are, a, they are the challenge. That's a ter- terminology. What we mean is that individuals, uh, they they just start to collect all these wrongs that have been done to them. And when, and that might be, you know, that you took their parking spot and that uh, they didn't get a promotion. They think they should have gotten, or they didn't get a job they wanted, or they got fired from a job or their spouse divorced them, or they're having an argument with their brother over a business dealings. And they begin to take all of these grievances and internalize them and and blame other people for why they're not successful, why they're not able to work through their challenges and problems. And in some cases, you know, we all deal with those kinds of things in life, but some people for some reason are more brittle than others, and they can't really deal with the uh, same types of challenges that some of us find a way to overcome in life. And those grievance collectors are the ones who we often see get on this pathway to violence so that they and uh, they can then plan for how they're going to you know I think you know in a, in our casual language we might say get even with somebody or but what it, what it really is is them getting control of something they feel like a lot of their life is not under control and this is an opportunity for them to control so they plan how they're going to go and and kill people or how they're going to go and damage people and they go after they go to places that they know. And they go to people that they know, many of them, uh, for instance, killing a family member first, about 10 percent.
0: Right. And in this case, again, we're not sure why the bowling alley, why that. But I suppose at some point, and again, he's only the suspect at this point, uh, Robert Carr, but I suppose at some point we're going to find out more.
1: Yeah. And there, and you know, I think there's, uh, there's early reporting out people talking to family members unverified, right. But law enforcement has a lot more information than we have out in public, but the, uh, the, the unverified reports uh, indicate that he had um, been hearing some voices. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why he was um, sought some mental health care on his own. And that hearing the voices included hearing voices he believed from those two locations. So he felt that those locations were there were people there who for some reason didn't like him or didn't didn't support him or didn't want to him to be around. And, and that may be why, although it will take time for um, for law enforcement our behavioral experts to kind of just piece that together, just so we get one more understanding of what took somebody to this level of violence and that's that's the unfortunate part is that we're we're doing so much in hindsight
0: catherine so much is made and we'll be talking about it on this side of the border as well about the guns right i mean maine does have pretty liberal uh or you know you might call them lax gun laws no they don't require background checks on all gun sales they don't have a red flag law and so on they don't ban assault weapons where does that play into this from your perspective you've studied this for so long
1: yeah guns is uh is the is the sixty four thousand dollar question isn't it uh here in the united states i um I teach a, a course in um, Second Amendment law for DePaul University's College of Law. And I have a podcast called Stop the Killing and my co-podcaster is in London. So so my co-podcaster is from New Zealand and she um, definitely we have this conversation all the time. And I think it's very hard outside the United States to understand that it's not just the volume of guns here, which is more guns than people, but it's also the culture. Uh, our culture in the United States, uh, people want to have their guns. They want to enjoy target practice. They want to collect them. And so many people uh, who own guns, uh, own the 400 million plus guns in the United States, uh, they own multiple guns, and they most of them just stay kind of locked up in their safe as little trophies. Um, and so it's really the violence is, the challenge is that guns are stolen, uh, people who who have problems in life, uh, get distressed, under stress, mental health stress or other stresses, um, have the gun availability. So it's really when people become troubled and then there's such an availability and access to guns, because, of course, the vast majority of guns in the United States are, are not used for this type of violence.
0: Right. I guess in this case, watching it, thinking, I mean, again, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but because there was that uh, incident over the summer, there were clearly, I mean, his family saying there haven't been long-term mental health issues, but clearly there was a crisis of some sort over the summer, and we don't want to sort of start to stigmatize mental health issues either, but in this case, the combination uh, of, of perhaps a mental health crisis and access to high-powered weapons uh, leads to a lot of questions about, well, how do you prevent that?
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a great analysis. I love that you put it that way, because, you know, research tells us that uh, mental health and getting mental health care is what we want people to do. One of the family members indicated to some uh, media entity that, in fact, this gentleman is off his medication, right? So he's got medication that helps him and he's chosen to go off of it. Right. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you. I'm sorry this is going on.
0: It's been 20 days now since that Hamas attack on communities in southern Israel left more than 1,400 civilians dead, including, we understand now, seven Canadians. That uh, death toll was increased today by Global Affairs Canada, although we don't know the identity of the seventh victim. Since then, Israel has been carrying out around-the-clock airstrikes against targets inside Gaza. And overnight, into Thursday, into this morning, Israeli troops and tanks launched an hours-long ground raid into northern Gaza. Uh, here is ABC's chief national correspondent, Matt Gutman details.
2: Israel claiming it conducted its largest ground incursion into the Gaza Strip since the October 7th terror attack by Hamas. Israel releasing infrared video showing bulldozers near a damaged border fence in northern Gaza, a column of tanks moving in, opening fire, hitting multiple targets. The Israeli military calling it a targeted raid, claiming it destroyed Hamas infrastructure, saying it was preparing for the next stages of combat.
0: That was the uh, ABC's correspondent there, Matt Gutman. Uh, now, the military said troops struck several targets in Thursday's raid in order to, quote, prepare the battlefield ahead of what is a widely expected ground invasion. Now, we've been talking about that ground invasion almost for about 20 days now, for nearly three weeks. Uh, But saying you're going into Gaza and actually doing it, of course, are two very different things. One of the main challenges that has been talked about from the get-go for any Israeli ground campaign is one they are too well aware of. The labyrinth, the web of tunnels, kilometers upon kilometers of them that crisscross beneath the surface, some as many as 230 feet underground, a city underneath A city, really. They aren't big or wide, so not perfect, but they do allow Hamas fighters to vanish and reappear, making urban warfare, which is already a huge challenge for any military, that much more difficult. Well, joining me now with more on this is someone who knows this subject very well. Retired Army Major John Spencer is the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at West Point's Modern War Institute. He's author our co-author of Understanding Urban Warfare, and he joins me now. Major Spencer, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Urban warfare, I mean, we've seen it all around the world over the last, I mean, certainly in my memory, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan, I mean, it, we've seen a lot of it. Uh, but this one is particularly complex in Gaza, a whole different level, really.
2: Yeah, really unique. And even in my studies, of, of the underground is not new, but just the amount of work that Hamas has put into building them, what they call it the metro or the underground, because it's just you know, 500 kilometers of what we believe is down. There could be more. I'm going from the surface all the way down to 200, 300 feet below where no amount of buck bu- or busting bomb can hit. Uh, and they'll use them both offensively and defensively. So for as, an, as an old soldier and if somebody studies it, you know, there's enough challenges on the surface with especially a guerrilla force like Hamas is going to use house bombs, ro- uh, roadside bombs, and RPGs and all that stuff. But to think that they can come up uh, underneath you, come up behind you, beside you, inside of a building you just cleared. Um, now, but also, so that, some of that's not u- unique, but the fact that the hostages, right, 200 plus hostages, we already know that the hostages were released we were in the tunnels. And logically, that's where the hostages will be. So really some of the, the nightmare is also the fact that as a military person, some of the normal things you would do to a tunnel, you can't do if you think your own hostages are down there.
0: Right. Uh, what did you make of this larger raid? I know uh, you've been talking over the past few weeks about shaping raids, which are sort of, yeah. you know, sort of touch, sort of feeling out your 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 enemy. Really, what did you make of this much larger, uh, seemingly this much larger operation overnight uh, last night into today? Yeah, I think it's a
2: possible sign that the ground invasion that we all think is going to happen. I strongly think that it has to happen um, in order to achieve the mission that the IDF said that they need to accomplish, given to them by the political leadership of Israel that this is kind of a sign, right? These are what you do a part of your reconnaissance plan. You try to test the enemy's defenses. You may go in to gather more intelligence about more of, the, of either where hostages are, like we saw earlier in the week, or where the defensive strong points are that you're going to use to shape. You also do it to fool your enemy on when you're going and where you're going.
0: Right, because in this case, considering we everyone's been talking about it for weeks, certainly Hamas uh, have been preparing it for it, but there's still this idea that there should be an element, some element of surprise here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from Sunzu till today, it's, even in an urban urban battle like this, it's possible to achieve operational and tactical surprise. Like in in the Battle of Fallujah in 2004, we built a whole base. Of course, we had a longer time, but we built a base south of the city to try to convince them that the enemy inside the city, that we're coming from one direction when we came from another one. But absolutely, you want to surprise them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it does, thinking back to, to Iraq, obviously there's, there are some some parallels when you see, kind of, or Syria for that matter, when you see the landscape, the urban landscape of Gaza, so dense, so many buildings. Uh, I mean, you've referred to... Urban warfare is sort of a sponge for big militaries. It is, in some ways, the great equalizer here too. We often, I think, there's a lot of respect, of, you know, for lay people like myself. There's a lot of respect for the IDF, for the Israeli Defense Forces. But this is not an easy uh, mission by any stretch of the imagination.
2: No, and 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 people think that it won't. There are ways to make it less destructive. Yes, you get as many civilians out of the area as possible, but. Look at the operations against ISIS in 2016 and 17. Entire cities destroyed, bigger than the cities of Gaza, like Mosul with 1.4 million. Marari in the Philippines, where 80 to 90 percent of the city is destroyed because the defender has you have to go in. You can't bomb your way. You have to go in and pry them
0: out of every house, every tunnel, every rubble pile. Where does the – when you look at the strengths and weaknesses here, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's, – it's Israel's in kind of a strange position because it has so many different topographies to defend in some ways. Uh, but you've talked about it being a very effective tank army. Uh, but in the case of, of Gaza, that's not going to help. Uh, so how well prepared are the IDF for this kind of fighting, considering they must have been planning – they must have known this must be on the on the war games activities they've done over the years because, of course, Gaza sits there, and it's always been a threat to them in one way, shape, or form.
2: Yeah, so I'll push back a little bit on the tank thing because I, I, it, it is almost like common sense that people think a tank is not what you need in urban warfare. It's actually the the vital thing you need. Uh, you, right. In a situation like this, especially with the rubble, which would usually slow down a tank, like in the Battle of Stalingrad, I mean, that's why you see so many bulldozers with the Israeli defense forces. So they've developed very unique capabilities that even the U.S. military doesn't keep on hand for this type of urban contested urban fight. Bulldozers, uh, their tanks have special armor and special artificial intelligence weapons that can shoot down RPG. Uh, they have some very unique um, things, but the problem, like you said, cities are sponges. They'll soak up all your capabilities because it might take you a battalion to take a single block. A battalion to take a single building is very common.
0: Wow. And then you've already mentioned the fact that the hostages in this case, I mean, uh, we spoke, and we spoke, we'll be airing this in a bit, we spoke to one of the the son of a Canadian hostage, a woman who's believed to be held hostage. That really, in this case, the political pressure within Israel to make sure these hostages are rescued, I mean, there must be things going on behind the scenes, but that, as you pointed out earlier, adds a real dangerous wrinkle to this whole operation for Israel.
2: Yeah, a nightmare. I mean, it's already a nightmare for soldiers who have to restrict their restrict the use of force in an urban environment because they're always populated with civilians, non-combatants. You're always on the lookout for ensuring that you don't, you know, basically um, engage in non combatant But now to have that fear of
0: the hostages in the environment, it, it, I wouldn't wish it on any military in the world. What about civilians on the Gazan side? Because a lot has been made about that as well. I mean, clearly the uh... The request that they move, millions move south. Um, I mean, they are, by the very nature of how Hamas conducts its operations, they are and will be in harm's way. And as you pointed out in in an interview that you did, um, you know, time is not on Israel's side here. At least one doesn't get the impression that politically, internationally, that time is on their side if this starts to drag on and we see a lot of civilian deaths in Gaza. So that's going to be a real... Difficult challenge for the IDF to try to to try to get this right. Absolutely, and and I agree. Uh, as a matter of fact, even though I've written and, and written
2: about the tunnel challenge, is going to be so great, but time is the biggest factor of any Israel mission. And really, uh, even in wars of survival, this is a defensive war, but that pressure from the outside world to stop, cease, uh, uh, and then taking all the precautions, and really. Um, I know there was a 24-hour uh, – but they started evacuating civilians uh, on on October 8th, asking not, you can't tell a civilian. You highly recommend, please leave the combat area. But right. And again, this, they're being held to a standard because of the environment that is unlike other battles I've seen, right? The Battle of Mosul, 1.4 million, and they requested them all to leave, and, and ISIS did the same thing and trapped them, as many of them there. and that requires a lot of precision-guided munitions and other things to keep those safer in the battle with you.
0: Right. I mean, you talked about that about about ISIS trapping those civilians, using them, uh, having time to to use them as a shield. Um, the last three weeks, it's nearly three weeks now since this started. Do you think Hamas is doing exactly the same thing?
2: Absolutely. We've, we. We. I don't need to think that. We've seen the messages from like they'll go they onto the mosque speakers and say. Don't listen to the IDF. Don't take their flyers, their their phone calls to you, their text messages telling you that we stay here. It's a they're, they're, You know, there's claims of war crimes about Israel, but everything that was done on October seventh, everything uh, targeting civilians, all the atrocities, war crimes, trapping civilians in, in the combat area, war crime, putting your military um, facilities in the civilian infrastructure, in the hospitals, in the underneath the schools, things like that so it won't be hit, is a war crime. Absolutely. It's actually the Hamas playbook, but you can call it the the ISIS playbook, but it actually goes, goes back to Hamas.
0: Retired Army Major John Spencer is with us this half hour. He served 25 years as an infantry soldier, including two combat tours in Iraq. He's now the chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Modern War Institute at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. We've been talking about the complexities of the Israeli Army's, uh, what we believe to be a, a sort of an offensive, on-the-ground offensive into Gaza, given all the tunnels that exist there, the hostages that are kept, the kind of force that Hamas is. Um, You've talked about this, uh, Major Spencer, as being a very, a very difficult uh, mission, obviously for the Israeli army, uh, but also one that could take a lot longer than one might expect.
2: Yeah, I mean, you don't. If we believe that the operation goes, and if we believe the statements of the IDF that the mission is to destroy Hamas' capability, uh, military capability, um, not you know some of the other problems, even politically, on I mean, who governs. But just that military task requires you to clear the urban areas, as in destroy tunnels, destroy rockets, kill leadership, kill fighters. Uh, that, in this situation, in this type of urban battles, would take weeks, if not months. It took us nine months, us being the Iraqi security forces, backed by U.S. and coalition air power, the best in the world, nine months to get ISIS out of Mosul with 100,000 security forces. Now, the IDF has more capability than the ISF, the ISF, and they don't have nine months. But this could take a lot longer than people think.
0: Yeah, and, and also just for Israel to brace for the kinds of losses they may see as well, because that's something that we haven't talked about. I mean, there, there will no doubt be, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of loss of life here, and I, I wonder how long before people start to, to question what's happening.
2: Right. I mean, they already are, right? They're already um, comparing civilian casualties. Although, uh, unfortunately, like you said at the beginning of the show, like, um, because of the last 10 years plus, we've seen so many of these large urban battles where the civilian casualties is actually 90% of the casualties of the battles. But yeah, the IDF will lose a lot of soldiers to accomplish this mission in that environment, based on the enemy of Hamas, the preparations they've done. um, and, And The IDF is aren't aren't used to that level of casualties in a long time. So, you know, war is um, a a battle of wills, right? The will of the IDF, the will of the international community, as the civilian casualty rate, which is inherent to this type of fighting, goes up, and the destruction, and we all watch it. There's lots of challenges here.
0: Right, and as you mentioned with Mosul as well, that the just the sheer level of destruction to what is in Gaza now—I mean, eighty to ninety percent—I think—destruction of of the infrastructure and the buildings and so on—and uh, I mean, this there's no moving it; it sits on Israel's border. That will also have to be. There has to be a plan for what happens next, right? And if you've places ninety percent destroyed, that's a tall challenge.
2: Right. This is the you know, this is the opposition. Right. I don't see nobody has not. I mean, I have alternatives to the operation, right? and I, nobody's asking me, but you know, just from a military perspective, you could have Hamas could do a complete surrender and a, um, a basically a complete dearmament of their weapons capabilities. They're not going to do that. But yeah, right. the day after is the question, right? Uh, with billions of dollars of damage caused in this in this operation, if it goes forward, do you have to reconstruct that. But then who governs the reconstruction? Who secures it? I mean, um this is about destroying Hamas military capability, but there, there has to be a solution to the security situation, and it isn't the two-state solution. That isn't like the, the solve-all-the-problems solution. There, there has to be um, the path to what comes after, and a lot of militaries mess that up.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen how difficult it is for any military. I think you mentioned this, that any military nation building isn't their forte, right? I mean, it's right. that's not what yeah. it's meant to be. Yeah, it's difficult, right, for anybody to, to build. And this will be one of the challenges facing, especially if there's that much, that much destru- destruction. Uh, I, listen, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for your insight, uh, Major Spencer. Thank you. Last half hour, we were talking with retired Army Major, U.S. Army Major General, Army Major John Spencer about uh, urban warfare, and the difficulties that Gaza would pose to any military, uh, Israel's in this case, of course, uh, because of the labyrinth of tunnels underneath uh, Gaza hundreds of kilometers, apparently, of tunnels that have been dug out over many, many years. Now, that is believed to be where um, more than 200 hostages are being held. And that number was revised upwards today by the Israeli military. We now know that seven Canadians have been confirmed killed in the Israel, Israel-Gaza war. Government officials confirmed that in a statement today. They're not identifying who the latest confirmed victim is of the October 7th attack uh, by Hamas in seven, southern Israel that killed more than 1,400 civilians. Uh, but there was a funeral today held in Montreal for one of them. Alexander Luke's father, Alain, told mourners that his son died while trying to shield others from the gunmen.
3: Selfishly,
5: I wish for just once, he would have been less of a hero. We still had so much more living to do. So many more memories to create.
0: Well, there are at least two Canadians still missing. As I mentioned, Israel's military has raised the number of remaining hostages Hamas is holding to 222 people. Now, this has been a big political issue in many places. Families of hostages were demonstrating for their release outside Israel's Ministry of Defense in Tel Aviv today. Simona Steinbacher says her daughter was kidnapped, along with at least 16 others from the Kibbutz Kafar Aza.
5: She found me and she was a scream.
1: And afraid and crying, Mommy, Mommy, they came to take us. Help me, help me, Mommy, but I can't go to help her because all the place was with Hamas.
0: Right, so you can see the anguish. Uh, and the pain for those families now who have been, keep in mind, it's been nearly three weeks, right? 20 days now since they would have last heard from their loved ones. Four hostages have been released. We spoke to the uh, niece of one of them earlier this week who lives in Vancouver. Uh, that uh, was 85-year-old uh, Yoshaved uh, Lifshitz, who was released. Uh, she was one of two women released earlier this week. And uh, she, in fact, has some connections to one of the Canadians who is still believed to be one of the hostages being held by Hamas. That is uh, 74-year-old Winnipeg-born Vivian Silver, the longtime peace activist, is believed to have been kidnapped uh, during the Hamas attack on Kibbutz Ber'i near the border with Gaza on the morning of October the 7th. Now, that was a vicious attack amongst many, of course, but at least 130 people were killed in that kibbutz alone, including women, children, infants, dozens of homes were burned down. Um, Silver's son, Yonatan, lives in tel aviv she's lived in israel for a very long time working uh as a peace activist there um he last spoke to her that very morning as she hid from rocket attacks in a safe room in her house on the, the kibbutz. Uh, the last three weeks, of course, or 20 days, have been incredibly difficult for everyone who has, uh, believes that their relatives or loved ones are being held captive in Gaza. And Yonatan uh, Zygin is, of course, one of them. He joins me now from Tel Aviv. Yonatan, uh, thank you so much for your time at this difficult time. Thank you. Uh, just i suppose an update of, i mean when i was watching uh, interviews that you've done over the past few weeks there was no information uh, that that you'd had or not much Uh wh- what do you know tonight about where your mom might be and, and, and anything on that line
5: well i'm sorry to say that uh, uh nothing has changed uh, on that front um, there's no um Formal information about her um, yeah yeah
0: um the last time you spoke to her, i suppose is still that morning of october the se- of, of October the seventh
5: yes, that was the last time she was heard of uh, heard from anybody um uh, the Israeli government is considering her um a captive that she was taken but the only indication is the geolocation of her phone in gaza Um which went silent on october 7th to 11 a.m right and you you had
0: been speaking to her that morning i know um i i guess at this point perhaps just those those conversations because she was i mean she had spent many years living on the same kibbutz she knew what the situation was like. I imagine it wasn't without its dangers at times, but that was a very different morning, uh, October the 7th.
5: Yes. Um, you know, the past uh, 20 years or so living there was, um, it was dangerous, but it was mainly uh, sad. It wasn't uh, because Israel built um safe rooms from uh, that protect people from rockets um and they um, invented this um missile protector that shoots rockets uh, so you know kids had it pretty rough uh, emotionally and psychologically but uh, my mother it wasn't that it was so dangerous but uh, she was very sad about the situation but uh, on saturday it was completely different it was something imaginable right and,
0: and you were and, and she you were on the phone with her I, at the time and she was voicing how different it
5: was yes um i never heard her uh, so afraid and up until a certain point she wasn't, she was still joking around with me Um, and we imagined it's going to be over, you know, every minute we thought the next minute is the last one, I mean it will be over Mm -hmm. that the army would come, something will happen the minutes passed and it wasn't uh, until it was over in a different sense that she was uh, that she was gone. At first, we thought you know. At first, we were sure she was dead, and uh, then we realized people are being taken. So, through piecing uh, bits of information together, we we decided she's there. We did see the release
0: of uh, two women this week. Uh, including a woman, I believe, from another kibbutz not too far away from, from Berry, uh that your mother has would have worked with. I don't know if they knew each other, Yoshevet Lifshitz or not, but is, did that bring any hope here?
5: Yeah, I don't know if she knew her. She definitely knew her husband, and um, I knew Yoshevet. We called her Yohi. She was my teacher oh, wow. in high school. She taught me photography. It was a roller coaster, because at first, you know, there's there's signals, something's happening, someone is going to be released. At first, they said 50 uh, people with foreign uh, nationalities are going to be released. So, it's anticipation, you're waiting, what's going on? And then, um, when the two women uh, got released, you know, I was happy for them and their families, um... She wasn't only my teacher. Her grandson was with me in my class. Oh, wow! Um, I w- I'm I'm very happy for them. Uh, it's personally hard, you know, because you anticipate something big or uh, or your own salvation, and uh, but uh, every life is a blessing. Yeah. At
0: this point, uh, you know, there's been. We don't know what's going on. I guess in that case, that was apparently negotiated by Qatar and Egypt. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Do you have, I mean, you've been calling for obviously for negotiations here. Do do you have an idea whether those are happening?
5: I can't know for sure. Hmm. It seems, it seems a lot of things are happening behind the scenes. Um, I really hope that they're happening in the way that I would wish for them to happen, um, which is diplomacy and um, taking this as an opportunity to to see that we are, we are able to strike deals and to talk and be creative, and maybe that would be the first. Um, a first, uh, I don't know, a first brick in the road to peace, um, but I don't know what's uh, what really what's really happening. I, but uh, I uh, I call on everybody to put the captives on first priority.
0: We've seen the families of um, certainly the families of, of the the Americans who are being held, uh, we believe, amongst others. I mean, there's been a lot of pressure, I see at least from afar, uh, on the government and on, on others to try to find some way to, to make sure that 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 anyone who's being held is their safety is put first. Uh, how has that been? Uh, have you been involved in that? And how much pressure is uh, the government under right now to try to make sure that these hostages are are safe and brought back safely?
5: I I believe uh, the pressure is international. Uh, inside the country now, it's pretty hard to mobilize people because everybody is hurting. Right. Um, so many people are enlisted now in reserves, in the reserve army, and um, really a lot of, you know, more than 100,000 people are evacuated and living in hotels and uh, in far sides of the country, and it's also um, our society is, um, it's uh, what's the word? Fractioned,
0: yeah, yeah, right? just, uh, just, yes, people, yeah.
5: People want, uh, there are people who say we shouldn't give anything, we should just go in and uh. And finish it with false and people who say we need to give ev- anything to to get uh, the captives back. So
0: Jonathan, your mom's story is so is so remarkable because she spent a lifetime uh extending that olive branch, helping and believe so deeply in the notion of peace in, in that region. Um she, I mean, it's it's something that I mean, you, you've you grown up around it. I mean, this is, I, I don't know whether many people in Canada or in the West understand the sort of the whole, uh, the kibbutz philosophy and, and what she was all about, but she sounds like, uh, I mean, she sounds like she's an absolutely incredible woman.
5: Yes, she was. She was kind of a political and spiritual giant, but also, you know, just a mother, <laughs> Yeah. And a grandmother, she uh, worked a lot. She was uh, really worked tirelessly in that field of um, peace work and um, justice, gender equality, um, equality between uh, different factions of the, of the Israeli society, between uh, religions. That what uh, she dedicated her life to. Um, aside from, you know, uh, living a very unique lifestyle in in the kibbutz, which was also uh, something you have to—it's not just a place you live at; it's a place you you work to maintain. So she was a busy woman,
0: and she would—I uh, I was reading a uh, part of the program—is at a period when it was safe enough. She used to bring. Gazans for into Israel for medical treatment who needed it, right?
5: That project went on until uh, until the war. This war broke, right? And uh, it uh, I guess it was coordinated with Hamas, not personally by her, but she was a volunteer in that organization, uh, driving patients from uh, picking them up in the border and taking them. Into Israeli hospitals, uh, but before the second intifada broke in uh, 2000, she had she was co CEO of an organization who worked a lot in Gaza. They mm-hmm. had projects there, and um, I remember, she took us there, me and my brother, when we were kids. What I mean at the, at this stage, I I
0: know I know it must be hard to maintain hope, uh, but but with what we saw this week with the re- release of some. Um and no information to the contrary, you must still be able to hold out some hope here, I would think.
5: Yes. You know, you, you're saying it right. It's holding on because the weight and uh, uncertainty is very challenging. A lot of times in situations like, like that, you have proof of life. You have the Red Cross going. It's... And now it's been, I don't know, 20 days with nothing. So it's um, it's really a horrifying experience. And, but yeah, we, we're holding on to hope and optimism that if she is there and alive, then there are chances that she will come back.
0: What would you like? Canadians and others to know. I mean, she's also, uh, you know, she's a proud Canadian as well. You'd like—I've heard you talk about this.
5: Uh, you, you, you want people to not turn away. Yes, um, I think you know she she came to Israel from Canada fifty years ago, but she—I think she always, even even if it wasn't, uh, even if it was passively, she would she held the Canadian values. Uh, at heart, and she was sort of an ambassador to to Canadian values of justice and st- striving for justice, at least and uh, and uh, and peace. And our family is still in Canada. We 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 are connected to to that country, and um, yeah, I expect. Uh, Canada to put their uh, full force on uh, on this um, on this uh, global event. You know, it's uh, I expect Canada because we're Canadian, but I expect uh, the whole world to be invested in this because we see that uh, everybody is affected. Uh, Jonathan, obviously, we're all um, thinking.
0: Of you and your family, and, and of Vivian, and and hoping beyond hope that this is not uh, that this has another this that her her story has more chapters to go.
5: Yeah, thank you.
0: All right, let's head to Nova Scotia and tiny West Ironbound Island. If you look east or south from it, you won't see anything but sea. If you took off and swam in a straight line, you'd end up in southern France to the east or Venezuela to the south. Um, It sits just off the coast of the southern part of Nova Scotia. It's only 120 acres big. It was once home to some families there for fishing and uh, there was the remnants of a lighthouse there as well. But that was long ago. In the early 70s, my next guest's grandparents bought the island and to keep the seagrass from growing out of control, they introduced a flock of sheep to the space. Good idea, right? Well, now more than 50 years later, the island has changed hands a few times, but the sheep are still there. And now they're pretty much wild. They're wild sheep. And the farmer who tends to them makes only occasional votes, my next guest, occasional visits, boat rides. You have to take a boat to get there to the island. So when the annual roundup takes place at the end of every summer, as it just did, it can be a pretty challenging endeavor. Uh, this year, Jake Wenzel wrangled up about a dozen friends and volunteers to help him wrangle up a truly unruly flock of West Ironbound Island sheep. And Jake Wenzel joins me now to tell me all about it. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, no problem. Whereabouts are you? I understand that no one actually lives on the island, so you you live nearby.
3: Yeah, so I'm on a small farm in Conquerall Mills on the south shore of Nova Scotia. Uh, so, in order to get there, it's like a, probably a twenty-minute drive, and then maybe a thirty or forty-minute boat ride. Wow! And and it's
0: been—I mean, uh, West Ironbound Island has was has been there. bit well. I mean, there's been things on it for quite some time.
3: Yeah. So originally, like long, long ago, there were actually three families living out there. That was like you know back in the days of like when everybody wanted to be as close as possible to the fishing grounds. Right um so long after that was all said and done uh, my grandparents found the island for sale that was in the early 70s and uh, they just thought it was a beautiful place and a really good deal uh and they decided to buy it but then they realized that there was so much long dead grass on the island that they needed to find something that could mow the grass for them uh-huh, um, uh-huh. yeah i, I, I cool. hear this i i
0: could think I, i'm a city boy but i can see where this is going <laughs>
3: Right, yeah, yeah. So sheep were the—they were not farmers at all, and sheep were the only thing that were kind of small enough and easy enough to manage, uh, and rugged enough that they could just live out there year round. So they didn't have to have a barn; they didn't have to really have much of anything. Uh, there's no predators out there. They didn't really need any fences. So it was kind of a natural fit.
0: All right, and so then sheep were introduced to the to to West Ironbound Island. I guess the rest is kind of kind of history. Now, I, I've you know I've spent some time in Ireland, so I've seen lots of sheep and. You know, in Ireland, there's sheep all over the place and in some really rough looking places, too. I mean, they're resilient. Right. But these aren't I've seen them. They're quite obedient.
3: Generally, these ones aren't right. Not so much. So these sheep, they don't see people very often. And uh, like probably so this has been going on for 50 odd years now. Uh, And up until about four or five years ago, these sheep were all of them were so wild that you couldn't get anywhere near them. Like the second they see you, they just run in the other direction. Uh, but a few years ago I had, so they're, they're not always possible to catch successfully. And so if I don't manage to get them, uh, all rounded up when I'm supposed to, uh, then they get bred at a time of year when their babies would be born in the middle of winter. And so this happened a few years back and I thought, well, what am I going to do? And, uh, I just, you know, I happened to have a little bit of barn space here. And I thought, you know, I've got all the time in the world. The sheep are already pregnant. I'm just going to spend the fall getting every single sheep off of that island. And uh, nobody had ever done that before. It had never, you know, it never really occurred to anyone. And uh, I was successful in that I got all but two and brought them home and kept them in my barn for a winter. And they hated it. They were, they're super wild. They didn't want anything to do with people. Uh, But I did manage to teach some of them to eat grain that winter. And so that has kind—it's simplified things a little bit. So now you have like half the sheep see me and they come running towards me. And then the other half still wants absolutely nothing to do with me. Uh, But it's kind of as I get older and older, it's like much harder to get my young friends out there uh, year after year because they know what they're in for now. You know, like the first time you go out to round up sheep on an island, it's like a super fun adventure. Uh, and then after you've done it a couple times and failed two or three times, then it's like people are kind of over it. Uh, so this has, it, we've gotten to a point now where we can like pretty much guaranteed we're going to get some sheep every time. And that makes a big difference for the morale of the people, I would say. <laughs> yeah, there's
0: been there's been some injuries, I guess. I mean, I guess it's it's rough work to catch the sheep and people. People kind of slip and fall and the terrain's uneven. I mean, I was looking at a map of it. There's sort of steep cliffs and slippery rocks. And the sheep have a distinct advantage on the terrain, I gather.
3: Absolutely. And especially in the woods. So that's the thing. Where there's no fences, the sheep can really just kind of go anywhere. And so when they're in a big group, they kind of, they act like sheep. And they more or less, you know, you can kind of chase them. We use the ocean as a bit of a fence. Um, but inevitably, you know, when some of the wild ones get it in their head that they're going to just run off into the woods, then there's days where literally we just spend all, like running in a crouch through a forest that's been pruned by sheep that are like three feet tall. Uh, and it's so thick and so dense, you can hardly see them, you know, when they're 20 feet away. Uh, and inevitably, yeah, I had a buddy that broke his finger, you know, running into a tree Uh, I had a friend when I was, this was probably when I was like 17, uh, a guy ran across a swamp, not knowing it was a swamp and lost both of his shoes. Uh, So that's the guy that the next year he came back, he came with his shoes duct taped onto his feet. Uh, We've had some stitches. We've actually had sheep jump into the water and had people swim after them. We've had to rescue those people. It's like... It's like well-organized mayhem, I guess you could say.
0: (laughs) It it sounds like something you should sell to like a a reality show and say, hey, why don't you you bring that show to, you know, West Ironbound Island this year and bring a bunch of volunteers with you and we'll film the whole thing.
3: I've thought that plenty of times, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I think it would be – it's like a phenomenal team-building activity, you could say, and it's just like – it's one of those things that you really – like I can't do it by myself, you know, no matter how – much experience I have or whatever, um, you have to have a group of sort of a minimum of five, ideally 10 people. And it's a combination of like luck, you know, where you find the sheep on the island, the like good communication between the people, um, and just sometimes just like your ability to keep on running even after you've exhausted yourself entirely. Um, but eventually we usually get them. What are they like in the boat? What do you bring them back? So this is the funny thing is like, if you're in a pen with them, they will do everything in their power to avoid you. But once you've actually caught a sheep, they're like completely docile. They just stop, you know, you like we do tie them in the boat, um, but they don't struggle. They don't jump. They, you know, they're just completely, um, they're completely calm once you've actually caught them. So that's a real advantage. Yeah, I'm.
0: I I love the story that you brought them all back for the winter, and most of them hated it. I mean, that's. uh, I guess they. I
3: mean, they really are wild, right? Yeah, completely. No, I mean, they probably like they have contact with people. I like in a normal year, maybe twice a year, Um, but still, you know, even there's probably I think there's six out there that I actually bottle raised, Um, and even them because I hardly ever see them you know when i put them out the first year they would come running every time they saw me and now they they'll look at me when they see me but they still don't come over unless i have a bucket of grain for them you know
0: jake wenzel is with us uh, he is a sheep farmer his sheep though are wild they live on an island not far from where he lives but as he explains about a half an hour about 20 minute drive and half an hour boat ride Out to West Ironbound Island. There used to be families on it. There's a lighthouse there, even an old, abandoned one. Uh, But not anymore. Just the sheep, and now it's the island. I guess Jake has been um, protected, right? So this can continue for the foreseeable future. I guess having the sheep out there, but you need someone to go wrangle them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So that's the thing. Without so the people, or sorry, the sheep look after the island, Mm -hmm. uh, but they do need some intervention in order to prevent things like inbreeding. Mm um so it's very little that they require um but essentially in the spring we go out and we round uh, we round them up and shear them and then in the fall we take all the males off the island and that's just to essentially control the timing of the breeding right um otherwise they live completely wild they don't get hay in the winter Uh, they eat seaweed that washes up on the shore they you know the dead grass moss spruce buds anything and everything and they really thrive you know it sounds almost like uh rugged and harsh for them out there but they've done so well you know 50, after 50 years they're still there um and they really uh, the less they have to do with people, the happier they are. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I remember, I think I was in Ackle Island in Ireland, which is sort of almost right across the way from where from where West Ironbound Island is. I mean, probably a little bit to the north, but right out there on the Atlantic. And it's windy, and it's craggly, and it's rocky. And lo and behold, everywhere you look, there's like a sh- you know sheep hanging off the sides of mountains, chewing on things. And it's incredible how resilient they are, because we kind of picture them as being sort of docile and flock-like and fleecy. But man, they're hardy animals.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're one of the few animals that you could put out in a space like that and have them do well on their own, I would say.
0: So you took this up. I was reading that you spent a lot of time on the island, sort of kayaking out there, or doing stuff. What about your kids? I guess you have to train a new generation of Wenzels to take on this work.
3: Yeah, it's funny. So my kids, uh, they love being on the island. They don't love getting to the island. And it's just <laughs> one of those things that... You know, it's it's an open ocean crossing in a very small boat. And there's always those days where, you know, the forecast calls for good weather and inevitably you get halfway out there and it's foggy or the you know, there's big waves or who knows what. So my kids do love the island. They've helped bottle raise lambs that we've had to bring home. Um, But they are all they have a healthy respect, I would say, for the sea and also, you know, for just how rugged the island is. Um, it'll be a few years before they can take it over themselves, I'm sure. But uh, you know, they're getting more and more comfortable with the sheep, and just getting to watch and understand how it all works. Really,
0: it's such. I mean, it's it's such a cool story in 2023 that this this is still happening, right? I think that's part of what's so alluring about it as well is that it it does it does harken back to something that that's been going on for not necessarily there because they were introduced, but that's been going on all around the world for a very long time. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, it's something that I really love about it is that it's it's kind of a closed loop farming system, you know, and that's right. what you really, that's what's really rare and precious about it is that you take these d- domesticated animals and you put them somewhere where they really don't require any input and they, you know, the island, it's maybe 120 acres and it produces a considerable amount of food. And essentially, the only inputs are, that are required is a jug of gas, you know, to get the boat there and back. Uh, and that's really it. You know, I buy maybe one bag of grain just to keep them friendly. Um, but as far as sustainability goes, you you will never find um, lower impact meat, I would say, really anywhere on the planet unless it's hunted. Um, you know, it's as close as you can get to to like to sustainability, I guess.
0: Well, Jake, uh, it's such a cool story. Um, And, yeah, if if you look it up, I recommend listeners look up West Ironbound Island on Google Maps. You'll see exactly where it is. You'll notice there's very little between those sheep and Europe to the east and South America to the south. Um, Thanks so much for your time tonight.
3: Uh, Thank you for having me. (laughs)
0: Now, I don't know much about something called Siren Battles because I really hadn't heard of them. And then, of course, they're, they're all over YouTube. They've been around forever, for a while at least. And that, to me, sounds like a really good a siren battle example because a it's very loud and b it's so clear it's really clear and i gather that's the point in a siren battle is you want the music to be incredibly loud but also not distorted so really clear um the way it looks and if you've seen pictures of it online cars bikes you name it they take what are sort of loud speakers you know like those things that you see perched all over the place that are like sirens, right? Those speakers. And then they line them up in an amazing way on these cars, and then they blast the music. And it's part of a subculture in New Zealand called siren battles. It involves people gathering in an area with their cars, blasting those music, uh, blasting music from sirens, more typically used for emergency warnings. And the idea, again, is to play the music the loudest and the clearest to be crowned siren king or siren champ, I suppose. Um, Now, the music they favor to make sure that it sounds like that is has to be high in treble and low in bass, more or less. I think i, think I get getting this right. Uh, that way it doesn't distort too much. And it turns out, perhaps for us Canadians, there's kind of an un- unlikely go-to in all this, and that happens to be Celine Dion. Now, we often associate her more with sort of chest-thumping power ballads and big movie hits, but in siren battles, she's one of the sirens that can help lead you and your speaker set to victory um you may expect when it comes to blaring music uh in public like that um That something even as inoffensive as Celine Dion might not have everyone feeling the love. So some in the area that we're about to talk about have launched a petition, I believe, to try to bring an end to this noise. It's kind of the usual battle between, you know, kids just looking to have some fun. And it's a bit footloose in some strange way. Kids looking to have some fun and the mayor of the town saying you need to turn that down a notch, right? Uh, If you've seen this story in the past few days, it's probably thanks to an article written by my next guest. He went out to write about siren battles um, and this article, especially the Céline Dion part, seems to have piqued interest right around the world. Because if you Google it, there's like a million different versions of this of, of this story now in a ton of different languages. It was certainly picked up by The Guardian and the BBC in England. I think that's the first foreign news organizations I saw pick it up. And now everybody, I mean, Global had an article on it this week that was the most viewed article on the website for a couple of days. So it's been hard to keep count. But Justin Alatif is the chief of staff at the Pacific Media Network and a former South Auckland editor for the spinoff. And this article, Appeared in the spin-off. Justin, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me.
6: G'day. How how are you doing?
0: I'm good. What a cool story. I, did, did you you must have noticed how uh how popular the story has been. I, I
6: must admit I actually didn't know until you you rang me or, or contacted me because oh. it, it's it was a big story in New Zealand. I mean, when I did it a couple of years ago, and it's sort of been yeah bouncing around our, um, airwaves, but I didn't realize it had gone quite so global. So to be honest, it, it came as a surprise.
0: Yeah. I, I think people glommed on to the Celine Dion thing, right? Cause the idea of sort of this kind of completely inoffensive uh, musician, the way her songs are seen as so inoffensive being sort of used to battle seemed like an odd, an odd combination.
6: Yeah. And it, it, I think it is really quite, and I was really surprised when I, you know, talked to the group about it and they were like, well, she has the perfect music for for this type of sound system and I mean who would have thought and what is funny I guess is there's a lot of areas where you you wouldn't associate her music you know I guess a lot of these communities hip-hop is really big or rock music's big and you've got these guys driving around blaring you know a song that was probably you know it reached its peak in the 90s or maybe the early 2000s and so it's a bit of a throwback to, um, you know, it's some some popular music that doesn't probably play on the radio that much. And so, yeah, it's it's caught people um, out a bit in, in that regard as well. So I think for that reason, it's also been kind of controversial in, in New Zealand.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, tell me, because it is it is part of, uh, if, if listeners don't know, it's sort of Pacificer culture, right? I think I might've gotten that right, uh, which is mainly, uh, you know, Areas that are mainly youth from 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 the Pacific Islands like Samoa and so on, and that's sort of where this uh, siren battle culture has really really grown up and and thrived.
6: Yeah, it does really seem to connect with Pacific, um, particularly young men who uh, they they talk to me about how they like they like really like reggae music. They really like their cars um i mean it it sort of really sprung up during COVID as well there weren't a lot of nightclubs where you could go out to it was a lot harder to and so this was for them a way that they could um enjoy music they they had the full control of how it was made and then they would go out to these deserted car parks and play it and and hold little mini dance parties so there's that aspect to it as well that it's really just a chance for them to get together and have a few drinks and, and dance and, and enjoy music. And also, they, you know, they, we've seen some artists emerge out of it as well. One guy who ended up, his samples got picked up by um, Jason Derulo <laughs> of the yeah. people. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting subculture. And, and, and the car aspect and the siren aspect is just one part of this sort of emerging kind of type of music that, that is, yeah, really taken off in parts of Auckland and Wellington.
0: Yeah, uh, Josh six eight five is his name. Uh, six eight five is the country code for Samoa, by the way. And his song was called "Laxed," and, and then it got sampled by Jason Derulo. that I think B, uh, uh, someone was it BTK that jumped into it too. "Savage Love" is this song is called. If you hear it, you'll know. Yeah, you'll know. The, yeah. You'll know. You'll know the sample. The cars are unbelievable looking because. I couldn't until I actually saw them when they have, you know, I mean, everyone knows sort of what a loudspeaker looks like, right? Sort of call the cone-shaped uh, speakers. But these cars are just coated in them. And it's unbelievable how much work must go into it.
6: Yeah. And, you know, from my understanding, it's thousands of dollars worth of, um, uh, you know, work that goes into it. They buy all these speakers. I think in the early days, these, and you probably had this in Canada as well, where kids would steal, um these types of speakers and put them on their bikes. And that seemed to be something that went global as well, but they've gone, taken this to the next level now that, and they've, you know, in, integrated it fully into their cars, sound system. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite unusual in the sense that it's also just primarily a treble type um, musical type thing. And I guess the other really interesting thing is that from what the guys told me, they also, um, they get fined a lot for having a legal, you know, additions to their cars. So they, right. part of the cost is um, getting stopped by the police and having your cars, you know, been fined for having, um, you know, unauthorized additions to your sound system. So it's yeah. quite, it's quite
0: a, a, a costly thing to get involved in. Yeah. Listeners, if you want to Google siren battles, you'll see what these cars look like. It's unbelievable. I mean, it, it looks like they went down and just took, took a bunch of loudspeakers and just, I mean, it's, very intricately done by the way i guess there's always sort of the usual accusations that they're being stolen but i gather they buy these right you can buy them buy them online and that's what they do
6: well i think because they have so many that need to go on them that it actually wouldn't be feasible to steal that many it'd just be too hard (laughs) to find so they end up having to like import them from overseas and you know there's obviously small ones that fit along the bottom of the cars and big ones that go on the top so it's, it's and from what these guys have said, they've had to teach themselves basically how to be electricians from scratch because they've had to wire them all up. And, the, and when I went and watched them, they were soldering things in. And
0: it's, wow. it's not simple at all. <laughs> how loud is it? Because, I mean, I've been watching them online and uh, you can tell just because they're so trebly that that sound must carry a thousand miles.
6: Oh, yeah. We, I mean, they actually, ironically, I live near one of the guys, and this is how I sort of got to the story as I live near one of the guys who does it. He doesn't actually do it in his own suburb because it will upset his family. So <laughs> but when you when when other rival groups do come, you, you can hear them, you know, they're miles away. But um that you can hear them probably for you know 10, 20, 30 Ks away because it is so resonating, you know, that the sound um, it's quite different to the the bass music that used to be really popular um, maybe a few years ago, which um, you could sort of feel the reverberations that drove past your house, whereas this is more, yeah, really high pitched and, um, yeah, resonates yeah. right throughout a suburb. Yeah.
0: Right. And right into the brain. Now, I gather like all things like this, and it reminds me a bit of this probably before your time but the movie Footloose, if you've ever seen it, that, that uh, you know, yeah, there's always yeah. going to be the, the angry adults, right? So the angry adults want to put an end to this. I guess, was there a petition or there, this might be all a bit old by now, but there was a backlash.
6: Yeah, and there's been backlashes right across um, the country, you know, in different areas. I, I know the police have been, they really tried to crack down on it um, shortly after the lockdowns because it was a real issue during the lockdowns. People were, they were no, not only doing this loud music, they were sort of like putting, rubbing their face in the people who were choosing to stay inside while these guys were out um, playing right. their music. Um, so it had that extra element of, annoyance because people felt like well why are they out playing this music while I'm stuck in my house um yeah. but yeah there's been lots of communities that and and, the, and in different areas the police have taken different options and and I guess one way is trying to get the council to um put bans on car parks and, and put liquor bands in place and different things I think though with the, all these sort of subcultures it's a bit like oil and water you can't really you know, wipe it out completely. And until councils find ways to accommodate it, it'll just can find ways to continue. Yeah. And so that that's really the challenge, I guess, for, for local councils and governments to try and work out how they accommodate these guys.
0: So did they play. I mean, I looked all over for for uh, an example of a siren battle using Celine Dion, and I couldn't find one. Now that's because there's not a ton of them online. Some of them are go back six or seven years, so the songs are different. Uh, but did you manage to hear any Celine at that at that at that volume?
6: Um, I've heard it just driving around our you know these people driving around um, our streets. I've definitely heard it. Um, you know, my love. Uh, what's the her one of her top my tracks, but yeah, my on. heart will go yeah. on. Yeah. It's one of the favorite ones, but um, there's a few others. It's not just that one. There's about two or three songs. And if you do, you can hear the the sample track. If you just Google Celine Dion plus sirens on YouTube and you can listen to yeah. the tracks, not, but not in a, um, them actually playing it in a battle because I, and from even the guys I've interviewed, they've actually taken themselves off social media, of late right. probably to try and stop um, possibly their competitive advantage but maybe also just people cracking down on the whole behavior so it, it's, it's a it is it's, a, it's it's operating outside the rules I guess at the moment and so there is that element to I guess try to keep some of their their stuff offline
0: yeah No. Okay. well before yeah. i let you go I, I guess i'm wondering how much celebrating is going to be going how many sirens and celine dion blastings is going to be going on this weekend if new zealand win the rugby world cup
6: yeah i don't know if it, the the two subcultures have married up <laughs> <Not yet. laughs> i don't know if how many i mean to be honest so the, the one of the main guys i interviewed i actually coached him in rugby and a couple of the others right. so that, that they are rugby players but um but yeah but from knowing them they've also they've given rugby away a long time ago and they've put themselves into other things so I guess you know I I, they'll they'll probably be a little bit of um convergence there but um I think rugby fans New Zealand we don't tend we're probably a little bit like hockey fans and uh in the sense that there'll be a lot of drinking and it may be some um you know just general mayhem but um yeah, not not no 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 turning over cars, which I think happened a few years ago. <laughs> no, we t- we, sometimes that <laughs> happens in Canada. Any predictions? Yeah, for, yeah, any no, predictions I...
0: for Saturday. Any predictions for Saturday? Oh yeah,
6: I'm 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 predicting us that we'll we'll win. Yeah, it, okay. it should we're um we're that we're the form team, and I think South Africa might run out of steam. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you broke you broke Irish hearts. So I, my mom was my mom, who never watches sports, sat down to watch watched all of Ireland's matches at the Rugby World Cup. And oh wow, uh, she's cheering for New Zealand now. She's cheering for New Zealand now. Okay. Uh, Justin, oh, well. thank you so much for shedding light on exactly what was happening uh, a long way from Céline Dion's birthplace, my hometown of Montreal, more or less. Uh, way down there in sort of Wellington and the suburbs of Wellington and the suburbs of Auckland, uh, I think a lot of people have been really fascinated by this story, particularly in Canada, because the idea of people doing battle with their favorite Celine Dion songs is, has no end of novelty to it.
6: No worries at all. I'm glad I could um, be of assistance.